Well, good morning to all of you. I like this notion of being packed up closer together. Uh, I think that, as you have probably noticed, human beings function like uh, gas molecules usually, <coughs> and they disperse evenly across uh, an open space. And I'm thinking, Bob, that what we might do next uh, chapel is actually try to pack everybody right into this section here. <laughs> that be intense fellowship there. This uh, passage that we're looking at today is almost an embarrassment of riches, isn't it? There are many different sermons that are calling to be preached from this passage, and I thought I would give you a rundown of some of the sermons I'm not going to preach today. <clears throat> the first sermon I'm not going to preach today is a sermon that would go straight to the idea of what this whole um, uh, story is about, according to the Gospel of John's own uh, published purpose statement. And that is the purpose statement at the end of the gospel that we get in chapter 20 is many other signs Jesus did uh, in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded. But these signs are recorded that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now we tend to call what Jesus does, we tend to call them miracles. Um, and many things can be said of miracles and what their purposes might be. This story has often been read at weddings as if the purpose is to validate marriage. And that works a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes the story is read in order to validate or undergird the notion of, let's say, a, a general sense of the kingdom of God coming. At other times, the uh, story is read to validate, oh, let's say, uh, notions in which Miracles are still possible. Claim your miracle. What is your water that you need to have turned into wine? And so forth and so on. But in this particular uh, book, in this particular passage, we're told what the purpose of signs is. And it's the point with a very clear and unmistakable finger, you might say, straight to Jesus and to validate him as the son of God who would, who would die for us and be raised for us and from whom then life would be radiant and get radiantly given to us. We could preach that sermon. I think it would go over pretty well, I guess. Then we could go into another sermon. We could talk about the peculiar audience that this story has. Now, I'll just say that for years, I missed entirely the audience that we're told this story was most uh, uh, intended for. I've always thought of the wedding guests as being the audience for the story. Or maybe the bridegroom. We know he had something to say about how good the wine was. Or the steward. Or the bride's or groom's families. Or even the servants who were helpful in this uh, miracle taking place. But we're told in the last verse there, verse 11, we're told that Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. We're not told about anybody else. His disciples believed in him. And what we have is this story is right in amongst several other stories. Right at the very beginning of John's Gospel, these stories are interested together. They're interested in establishing that Jesus was believed upon. He was received by the initial apostolic community and understood to be the Son of God. And that that community is the community that is, as we learn from John 17, 
It's that community's witness that echoes down through the ages, and all of us are believing in Jesus primarily because of this unique, unrepeatable community out of which the apostolic message arises. That would merit a sermon uh, of its own. And then one could look at a sermon, uh, the, the list of sermons keeps going on, one could look at a, a sermon that would actually investigate the nature of this miracle itself. That is, it's not just any miracle, but it's water turned into wine. And not just any wine, but really good wine. I speak just from my imagination on that. Really, <clears throat> really, really good wine. So good that it was noted by the steward of the feast who said, man, to the unsuspecting groom, you've really done an interesting thing here. Here you've held this spectacular wine off for last here. And it's also not just good wine, it's wine in huge abundance. When you look at and begin doing the math on how much wine there was there that Jesus supplied late in the feast after all the rest of it had run out, you realize this is far more than was needed. Uh, when you start adding it up, probably something like 150 to 180 gallons of wine, really good wine. Uh, then we have, imagine, say, three to four 55-gallon drums of this really good wine, just lots and lots of it. What's going on with this amazing supply of really good wine? Reminds me of a story uh, told of Winston Churchill. I think I can tell it here. I can? Okay. Uh, the um, the well-known, crusty uh, former prime minister of England back during the years of the Second World War. And uh, the story is told of his speaking before a large group of women who were uh, members of the Women's Temperance Union, which for those of you who are not familiar with that expression, it means people who are against drinking alcohol. And of course, Churchill is known to have basically bathed and showered in alcohol <clears throat> on a daily basis. And I, I actually do not know the circumstance that would have led to such an event of, the, of, of, of Churchill addressing a large congregation of temperance union women, but there he was. And the woman who was the president was introducing him. She was trying her best to stay on, tar to stay on track, but the, finally it got the best of her. And just at the end, just before she introduced, she let Churchill come up to the, to the lectern, just before that, she said, she broke down, she said, well, I must tell you women, I just must tell you women, that Mr. Churchill has already drunk enough whiskey to put us all up to our necks in this fine auditorium here. And she said, and before the end of his life, I'm sure that he's going to drink enough whiskey that could fill this entire sanctuary up to the rafters. And then she sat down. <clears throat> and then Churchill got up. And he approached the lectern. He looked out across that audience. Then he looked up to the rafters. He looked down to the audience and back up to the rafters. And he said, so much to do and so little time. <clears throat> God, God, through the patriarchs and through Moses and through the prophets and through the kings and the sages, has, if you'll allow it, put us up to our necks in grace. Jesus comes along 
and just puts it on up to the rafters with the kind of outflowing of God's own glory and saving mercy through Jesus. That could be a sermon too, if we were to develop that one right there. <clears throat> but I actually want to go on to another point because as one writer has said, this story of the uh, turning of the water to wine at Cana is told in a remarkably economical way. Every, everything is said to be very tightly pruned. Nothing is wasted in the story. Think of it. In John's Gospels, you have these long, rambling discourses and teachings that Jesus has. And here you have a story of all of ten verses. And yet within that, we have an awful lot of projection out of it. What, a, what a, an amazing economy uh, that this story has. And so nothing is to be wasted, nothing is to be ignored or forgotten. But within this story, we have another small story going on. And that's the story between Jesus and his mother. And his mother has some pretty good advice. And she says to, uh, to the servants who were there, she says to them, do whatever he says to you. Obey him in whatever he tells you. Now I think that that would preach also as its own sermon. You could just walk on out with that one then. Do whatever Jesus says to do. However that is, whenever it is, do what he says to do. And yet I'd like to take that and set it down inside this story. She tells these servants to do what Jesus says to do, all with the eye of something amazing happening. And Jesus knows, I suspect, I suspect what will happen. He knows that there will be this amazing outpouring of mercy and outpouring. It will be a revelation of his own glory. It will be an outpouring of that. Guess what? Through, partly through what they will do there, what those servants will do. In other words, we have an interesting connection here, a nexus between human activity, human behavior on the one hand, and God's miraculous self-revelation of glory to us on the other. Our activity, God's demonstration of grace and mercy. How do the two connect? How do the two connect? How do the two fit together? Well, uh, I, I think that there are some interesting clues we pick up about the nature of this activity that they undertook. It was filling big jars with water. That's what it was. And when you imagine how much uh, water had to be brought in, and when you imagine the distance likely from whatever the water source was to this particular location, and however much could be carried, I have carried water to my garden, and I'll tell you, it is heavy work. There was a fair amount of heavy work being done in getting that much water, over half a ton of water carried from wherever the source was to these large jars. A lot of work was being done. But I want you to notice something about that work. It was work that Jesus had commanded them to do. Do this. Do this. It wasn't their invented idea. It was Jesus' instruction, number one. Number two, in doing this work, they were doing two things simultaneously, the two sides of the same coin. They were obeying Jesus, and you cannot obey Jesus in the way they were doing without there being on the other side of the coin a certain kind of trust in him that he was actually going to do something meaningful through what they were doing. You'll find this again and again, that trust and obedience seem to be very tightly 
connected to each other. In fact, it's only, I think, in aberrant spirituality where these are disconnected and separated from each other. Trust and obey, the gospel song tells us. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. And so there you have these servants trusting and obeying the commanded uh, uh, performance by, as, as Jesus has commanded them to do it. But then we look at what they did and characterize it. What is carrying water? I'll tell you, it's perfectly normal. There's nothing miraculous about water. There is nothing special about water. Water is water. It has no particular taste to it. It particularly, I suspect, it had no cost to it at all or, or value. They probably didn't have to pay for it. They just drew it and took it there. Water is water. Also, the filling of those large jars was in no way necessary for Jesus to perform his work. Think about that. Did Jesus need them to fill these jars with water? I'm going to say absolutely not. And yet we find a pattern at work, and in an earlier chapter, Bob made reference to it, a pattern at work throughout the Gospels, and specifically in John's Gospel, of Jesus asking people to do things, to do things as part of his work in and for them. We have here filling jars with water. We have in chapter 9, Jesus sends a blind man that's got, he's got mud all over his eyes. He says, go off to a pool and wash up there. He did it, and he was healed after having done that. And then, very interesting, you might want to read again the Lazarus story, chapter 11 of John. And in that story, <clears throat> what we see is that Jesus approaches the tomb. And here is Jesus, who's about to perform the most spectacular and uh, power-laden miracle in the whole gospel. But what does he do just before he calls Lazarus out? He tells Martha, and he says, y'all move that stone. Move the stone. Jesus doesn't need help moving the stone, but he often enlists us in doing things, moving stones, washing our eyes. And then here in John chapter 2, filling jars with water. Unnecessary, uh, nothing special, and nothing miraculous. Notice this. It wasn't that, that the servants did 5% of the miracle or 20% of the miracle. What percentage, you answer me, what percentage of the miracle did their work accomplish? None, zero. Nothing miraculous is accomplished by what they did, and yet Jesus commands it to be done. What an amazing thing. What I want to suggest that this is a template, more than we realize, for how God does work in and through us. He asks us to be involved but the surprising and mysterious thing is, it, is that our involvement, though it involves work and labor, isn't actually, in a strict sense, necessary for God, nor does it accomplish anything, nor does it have any real power to it, to make happen what happens. Around here, we talk a lot about spiritual disciplines. We talk a lot about um, the means of grace. And I don't mean to use those expressions, talk a lot about, to disparage them at all. As I get older and mature, I'm embracing them more and more. Things are happening to me because of the means of grace. They've been happening for years now, decades, because of the means of grace. But there's, they're often misunderstood. I'll tell you that I misunderstood them for years as, an, as a younger adult. I was raised in a, in a uh, very godly household, 
And uh, I was helped along to be performing the means of grace all the time. Bible study, prayer, uh, attending church, the Eucharist. All these were simply woven into my life. And then I was sort of set on my way, do these things, accomplish them, keep working on them, work hard on them, and I worked hard on them. You might guess my personality type is such that I would tend to work very hard on assignments given me. And that's what I did. I worked very hard. I worked very hard on this matter of spiritual formation, of shaping myself and trying to develop whatever I needed to develop. Prayer. You should have seen my lists, my, my layout of how to do prayer, how much Bible study to do. Very, very detailed, very lengthy. I got to a point where I just basically crashed. I think I was 25 years old. Um, we were living in an apartment in Lexington at the time. I'm not sure I've told very many people ever this. I got to a point where the whole thing came crashing down. I was exhausted by my work, by my efforts. And there was another sort of a parrot on my other shoulder saying, why are you working so hard? This is an amazingly hard work, isn't it? And so I ricocheted back and forth between action and no action, between work and, and, and doing nothing, between being active and being passive, until I came to a point where I determined I was not going to pray or read the Bible again for a long time. And as I recall, it was about six weeks, and I just simply said, I cannot handle it, I'm not doing it anymore. And during that six-week period, I happened upon one of John Wesley's sermons. I don't know how the providence of God works, except that it works, <clears throat> sermon 16 on the means of grace and that was the opening in my heart and mind of a new reality I realized that the means of grace draw me in to sit within a stream of God's mercy that I can't make anything happen I can't change anything in myself I can't work on myself and shape myself it's not self-formation it's formation by the Spirit of God as we wait within the means of grace that, guess what, Christ has ordained. We don't invent our spirituality either. We receive from him the command, fill these jars with worthless water. Go ahead, and I will step in, and I will work through them. Can I read you just a few lines from this sermon as the close? It's Sermon 16, and I want to read just a few uh, choice lines here. Wesley's words. Have a care, therefore, of limiting the Almighty. Translation, be careful not to limit God. God does whatever and whensoever and whatsoever it pleases him to do. He can convey his grace either in or out of any means he has appointed. Isn't that good news? Second, before you use any means, let it be deeply impressed upon your soul. There is no power in this. It is in itself a poor, dead, empty thing. Separate it from God, and it is a dry leaf, a mere shadow. Those words burned in my mind years ago. Neither is there any merit in, any, in using any of these. Nothing intrinsically pleasing to God nothing whereby I deserve any favor at his hands, no, not even a drop of water to cool my tongue. Settle this in your heart, that the mere work of doing this profits nothing. There is no power in them to save, but in the Spirit of God, no merit but in the blood of Christ. 
Even what God has ordained conveys no grace if you do not trust in him alone. After you have used any of these, take care how you value yourself thereon, how you congratulate yourself as having done some great thing. This is turning it all into poison. Think, if, if God was not there, what does it avail? If God was there, then if his love flowed into our hearts, you have not forgot, as it were, and or I'm sorry, you have forgot, as it were, the outward work. You see, God is all in all. Be abased, sink down before him, give him all the praise. We're about to come to one of these means of grace here at this table. It is a mere leaf, a mere shadow. It has no potency in it apart from God's work and presence in it. But here's the promise. He commands us to do this. That's the implicit promise. He will show up and that he will work his work within us. Thanks be to God.